Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, we're talking about expert witnesses, and really, this is going to be independent medical examination in New Jersey workers' comp claims. Uh, thanks for joining me here today. Uh, we're going to be talking about independent medical exams, and I'm going to be answering your questions live. So I hope you brought some questions with you today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what I'm looking for as an expert in general, uh, what kind of qualifications I'm looking for, when to use them. Uh, I'm going to talk about how to maximize the results of your independent medical exam and how we're going to present that testimony at trial. And I want to go through some sort of practical examples, different types of cases in New Jersey where we're going to be really relying on our experts. So I'm going to talk about cardiovascular claims, psychiatric claims, and I'm going to focus on reopeners as well. Now, just a couple of things, uh, some housekeeping. For those of you who join us every month for these New Jersey webinars, you know we also do webinars on construction defense litigation, civil litigation, and really talking about maximizing your recovery with subrogation actions. Uh, we do New York workers' compensation webinars, and today, if you're here today, is for our New Jersey-focused webinar. Uh, I'm also excited because I, I came into work this morning, and um, this book was here waiting for me. Uh, this is the, the book I write for LexisNexis with my co-author, uh, and this is the New Jersey Guide to Workers' Compensation Claims. And this one is really full of legalese. As you can tell, it's pretty thick, uh, and it was written with my co-author, who is a petitioner's attorney. So uh, Rick Rubenstein uh, represents sort of the plaintiff's bar in writing this case, and I represent the defense bar uh, in writing this book. Each year since 2015, uh, we've sent a new edition to the publisher. It's published by LexisNexis, Matthew Bender uh, is our publishing house. Uh, this year, we've got a totally new um, uh, uh, chapter on defending COVID claims, and I'm just getting a message already saying, oh, Greg, the audio sounds a little bit weird today. Does it sound normal? Uh, it looks like it's coming through okay over here, uh, but you're saying it doesn't sound so good over there. Well, I hope everyone can hear me uh, as well as you can, um, and uh, if not, uh, send me some messages and I'll try to see what's going on there. Um, but anyway, this book is really it's full of legalese and it's really written for judges and attorneys practicing. If you're watching this today and you want to copy this book or know how you want to learn how you can order the 2021 edition, let me know. Um, you should also know that I write sort of a plain English handbook uh, that we send out to our clients, and that's really a lot of risk professionals, adjusters, carrier clients on really straightforward how to handle New Jersey workers' comp claims. My 2021 handbook that's self-published by this law firm, and we're happy to get that out to you. In fact, we have a digital edition of that out to you immediately. And we should have the new version of that to the publisher in about a month. Uh, so generally in November, we're going to try to start sending those out to our clients. So uh, that's what's up. Uh, it's just kind of fun to come in today and sort of see a copy of the book. It always feels real, all that effort, uh, when you get that final copy coming back from the, uh, from the publisher. All right, so what we're going to talk today is independent medical examinations in New Jersey. And my goal is to give you as much um, really straightforward, usable, practical advice as I can. Uh, so let's, uh, let's go dive right in uh, to today's presentation. And where are you? Okay. Uh, don't forget this is live. If you type in your questions, I can see your comments. They'll pop up, and I'll try to respond to them as fast as I can. All right, first thing. When are we getting an independent medical examination in New Jersey? What, what, what are the triggers to this? So first, when you're directed by the court. And you'll see this happening uh, pretty uh, frequently in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. So 
the petitioner's attorney will go out and get their own independent medical examination and the judge will look at you and say, okay, it's your turn, uh, go get your exam. Now, hopefully we're on top of it. We know when the claimant has reached MMI. And so we should be going out and getting our exam at that time. The other time that we're going to get one typically is when the uh, petitioner has filed a motion for med intent. And the med intent motion, we covered it last month. That's where the petitioner is coming forward and saying, hey, I've been provided with this medical care, but it's not enough. I need this other additional treatment. And judge, I want you to direct the respondent, the employer, the carrier, to provide me with this additional medical treatment. Well, the way to defend them, uh, motion for med intent typically, is to either rely on the treatment course or the recommendations of the uh, treating physician who said, nope, this person has reached maximum medical benefit. There is no more curative care. Uh, any further care is going to be simply palliative. Or uh, if there is a dispute about the necessity of further care, to go out and get an independent medical examination done. In general, in New Jersey, I do not recommend clients get record reviewed. And that would be the opinion of an expert without a physical examination. In general, I don't think that those are as useful. The judge of compensation is generally going to want to see that there was a new independent objective medical examination done. So, uh, the other time we're going to get an independent medical exam is where the petitioner is trying to expand their claim. They've reached MMI, they've gone out and gotten their own opinion, and they're now trying to bring in new body parts or allege a consequential injury, for example, psychiatric disability. In those circumstances, we'll often tell the client, hey, it's not in our best interest for us to go out uh, and send them for a second opinion or send them back to a treating provider. We'll say, you know what, in this instance, as they're trying to bring in a new body part or a consequential injury, it's really in your best interest to get an independent medical examination. So we can address those concerns head on. Um, next, uh, I like to get independent medical examinations when we want to put together a full and complete picture for a physician and have them give an opinion as to cause a relationship, particularly, again, as uh, the body, new body parts and new um, systems are being brought into this case. The most common reason for us to get an independent medical examination in New Jersey is because there's an issue of permanent residual disability. And the reason that's the most common uh, use of an independent medical examination is because remember in New Jersey, we control and direct medical care. The employer or carrier has the opportunity to pick the treating physician to authorize all treatment and care. And so typically, the claimant is following the treatment course that we're approving, we're authorizing. We have them following what's hopefully going to be best medical practices to move them either back to work and either accommodated or in a regular duty position or to really be as curative as possible. And the only issue really after that has been completed is is there any permanent medical impairment? And that's what the uh, physician who performs the independent medical examination can provide to us. Now, when I am advising a client uh, about who I want or who we should obtain as an independent medical evaluator, I want to admit to you that this is almost like a dark art because we have our favorites, we have our biases, we have uh, no uh, general direction from the court as to who can be an independent medical examiner. Uh, well, there's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of choice. So how do we make those choices? Again, in order to be an independent medical examiner under the court rules, there are very minimal rules that have to be followed, essentially that you do independent medical examinations uh, and that you will be amenable or available for testimony. That's pretty much it. It's really pretty straightforward. For example, in New Jersey, there are no specific formats for an independent medical report. Uh, it doesn't have to be 10 pages. It doesn't have to be three pages. There's no rules regarding how that report is served. And this is commonplace in New Jersey. 
with the defense or insurance uh, carrier to get a draft or a preliminary copy of that report before it's promulgated to all the parties, including the court. And that's perfectly okay. That's in accord with the court rules. So what am I looking for when we're selecting this independent evaluator? Well, in general, I want someone with great qualifications. You'll discover that in general, the independent evaluators who are performing these evaluations on behalf of the defense, so the employer or carrier, they are generally board-certified orthopedic physicians. And the reason for that is the vast majority of cases involve an orthopedic injury. Um, in the same token, uh, a spinal injury case, a disc protrusion, a bulge case, we're going to get a board-certified neurosurgeon to provide us with our opinion. So the first thing I'm looking for in my evaluating physician is great qualifications. I really want them to be board certified. I want them to have a great track record, um, hoping that they still have hospital or admitting privileges, and they can speak very uh, specifically to the type of injury that's involved in this case. For example, I don't want my neurosurgeon addressing a hand injury case. I don't want my hand surgeon addressing a knee case. I'm really going to be looking for an expert with great qualifications. The next thing is, I want a competent examination, and that includes what I'm going to call distraction testing or credibility testing. So uh, we have the opportunity to have the physician perform their own objective medical test, and this is going to be basically your physical exam. I'm also going to ask in nearly all cases that some form of distraction testing is going to be done. If you might be familiar with what L testing to determine low back injuries, straight leg raising tests are a form of this, et cetera. But there are tests that we're going to ask the physician to perform to just make sure that the uh, claimant or the petitioner is being open and honest with us about their actual condition. And of course, we're going to want to perform testing and evaluate the contralateral body part. If it's a right shoulder case and they're saying, you know, I only have 120 degrees of motion in my right shoulder, well, I'm going to want them to evaluate the left shoulder and make sure that they don't have more or less degree of motion in that left shoulder. So we're really going to be asking the doctor to perform a comprehensive physical examination. And really, what we see is these physicians are really experts at doing that. Uh, but again, we want to make sure that this is an objective medical test that we can rely upon in court. For example, I'm also going to want them to examine all the medical records, and most particularly, the radiographic tests, that would be x-rays, MRIs, CAT scans. I'm going to want to provide them with the actual films themselves, not simply the radiologist's report. I want the physician to have the benefit of all of the medical records that we um, next, I'm going to want the physician to do their own questionnaire of the petitioner. Now, it is okay in New Jersey for us to recommend or suggest the questions that the independent evaluator asks in their own examination. And that's important to make sure that they are sticking to the body parts that we're asking them to examine. Next, I want a clear report, as much plain English as possible. Now, of course, they're going to throw some medical jargon in there. And it's our job as defense counsel and your job as a risk professional to be aware of that medical jargon. But I really want a plain English report to the extent that we can get it so that it's very clear to opposing counsel and to the judge exactly what body parts the evaluator reviewed, what medical records they considered, and how they reached their final opinion in regards to permanent residual disability or need for further treatment. And it's things that I need to establish. I'm also thinking at the time we pick the medical evaluator, how is this evaluator going to be on cross-examination? If I have to present this evaluator to the court, of course, I want the physician to find, or, sorry, the judge to find our physician more credible than the evaluator that's been chosen uh, by the petitioner or plaintiff. And so I want to make sure that they can testify well, they speak English uh, very clearly, 
they can explain their position, and that they, when they're giving their testimony, that they can explain what's in the report, and they don't go off on speculative adventures. You know, if you are aware of my sort of criteria for uh, independent medical evaluators, it's that they understand how to testify, they've testified before, and they're going to listen to me, the defense counsel, because it's my job during testimony to protect them during that cross-examination. Oftentimes, my opposing counsel is going to want to ask leading and speculative questions to the independent medical doctor with the purpose of trying to get them to depart from the opinion in their uh, medical record or their, their medical report. And the purpose of that is really to get my doctor to go into sort of wild speculation and sort of give opinions on things that are not in evidence. So what I typically see is a physician's attorney, uh, sorry, a claimant's attorney, who will constantly ask my doctor counterfactual statements and then have the doctor evaluate. So if it's a right arm case and the physician has told my physician uh, that he can barely move his arm and he's totally disabled, and my physician found that he had both an active and passive range of motion and no accuracy and really good use of the right arm, really not any limitations in his activity. Uh, it's very common for my opposing counsel to question or cross-examine my independent medical physician with counterfactual statements such as, well, doctor, isn't it possible that the day you evaluated them, they took all of their pain meds and that's why they had such good use of their arm or shoulder that day? Or they'll say, uh, isn't it possible that the next day after this evaluation, after you found such a good range of motion, that they were in so much pain that they couldn't do anything with that arm and that they really have a much more significant degree of impairment than you found? Now, obviously that's an, uh, a speculative question it goes off into the woods and asks my doctor to sort of assume a whole bunch of new facts that are not in evidence. Uh, and it's my job as defense counsel to raise my objection. Say, objection, Your Honor, that question calls for speculation. Your Honor, that question uh, goes beyond the scope of the direct report that was provided, etc. So it's my job to protect it and keep the doctor from doing that. But I also need a doctor who's experienced enough to know when they're being sort of led down this uh, speculative uh, path by the physician's attorney and not to fall for it, right? So when we're choosing or we're suggesting to you who the physician should be, we're also thinking, I need someone who's credible, I need someone with great qualifications, but I also need someone who's going to hold up on cross-examination and sort of stick to the story as they've laid out in their objective report. All right, um, what can we send to the evaluator in preparation for their evaluation? I'm gonna talk about some specific examples in a second, but I just want to talk generally about the kinds of things that we can send. Now, first, I think a very good cover letter is tablescape. Many of our clients want us, the defense counsel, to write that cover letter, and we're more than happy to do it. We will prepare a complete medical index. We will lay out all of the uh, radiographic studies, which we consider to be objective tests. We will uh, make sure that we obtain all of the actual films. Nowadays, they're sent over to us via DVD. We'll make sure that that gets over to the doctor. Um, we really think that a good cover letter with some very specific questions for the doctor to answer during their evaluation, I think that's table stakes. I don't think if you're getting an independent medical examination, you're spending that money, and by the way, it goes into the thousands of dollars, and you're just asking the doctor to kind of wing it, and not giving them the sort of very specific questions you want them to ask. I think that's a waste of your money. So the number one thing is a great cover letter. Now, some of our clients say, hey, great, I don't know Okay, I'm happy to have you do that. We're happy to review it for you and, and sort of make sure that it meets the criteria. And I'm going to talk in a few minutes about the very specific incidents 
where we actually just want to lay out for the doctor the legal standards that we're going to ask them to testify to. So cover letter to me is table stakes. Next step, a good questionnaire. Uh, we want the independent evaluator to really ask very specific questions when the petitioner comes there for their evaluation. And those questions can exceed just the medical exam. It could be things like, can you give us uh, examples of how your activities of daily living have been infringed upon uh, by your alleged medical expense? So we're going to look for a good questionnaire delivered in the doctor's office. Next, I'm going to provide to the physician any non-medical documents that I have, which I think are useful in the case. For example, the person's job description or a description of the accident, maybe even the accident report. Too many times I have a claimant who goes to the physician and tells them, well, I, I slipped, fell, I, not, I was knocked out, I had a loss of consciousness, I hit my head, I hit my arm, I hit all these other body parts, and my evaluator takes that at face value. It's really important for the evaluator to have you know, that initial uh, uh, medical report or that initial first aid report or that initial report of accident, which might refute some of those things. Maybe there was no loss of consciousness. Maybe they were, it, the person was fine. They called the doctor. They called the ambulance themselves. We want to know that stuff, and I want to provide that to the physician, including things like a job description. Um, oftentimes, my physicians will come back, and they don't have a full job description. They don't know what the person does, or maybe they don't know that light duty is available in the location. And they'll come back with a report saying this person's totally disabled. They tell me that in their job, you know, they have to lift 80,000 pounds worth of materials a day. And the person uh, is being evaluated, maybe doesn't tell the independent examiner, well, yeah, we lift 80,000 pounds a day, but I'm driving a forklift. You know, it, it, it's all done by joystick. You know, we really want to make sure the doctor knows his job is what. Next, surveillance video. So I've got surveillance video which demonstrates the person's activities of daily living. Uh, and that has no surprise value in the case, I'm going to want to provide it to my independent evaluator. So uh, oftentimes when we put uh, a petitioner under surveillance, we don't do any per se fraud. You don't see the types of um, you know, uh, concealment that maybe uh, would arise to the level of an independent argument for this is a fraudulent claim. And maybe it has no surprise value, right? So why wouldn't we turn that over to the evaluator? Hey, uh, we did a couple days of surveillance, we see them driving around, we see them picking up the kids from school, we see them going to the store, we see them doing their normal shopping. Again, nothing extraordinary, nothing amazing, nothing that arises maybe to the level of a fraud, uh, but maybe something that the evaluator would want to see and would maybe contradict the statements of activities of daily living which are being given to the evaluator by the claimant. Um, there are real, no, no real limitations on preparing our physician. Uh, so we have the opportunity to really speak with them before they do the evaluation, provide them with any material that you think are necessary, uh, and certainly before they testify, we will absolutely do a lengthy preparation on exactly what we expect the cross-examination to be and how we expect the court proceedings to go. Uh, remember, your petitioners are absolutely preparing for their evaluation. If you go on YouTube and you just Google how to prepare for my IME, you will see many, many videos, dozens of them, uh, prepared by plaintiff's attorneys, explaining exactly how to exaggerate and bring forward all of your complaints and, and really relive the entire accident for the independent medical exam. Uh, so we should be doing the same thing. We should really be getting ready for that independent medical exam and really treating it as one of those key milestones in your workers' compensation uh, defense case. It happens in New Jersey a lot where the petitioner misses an independent medical uh, My advice to clients is generally to just go ahead and reschedule that first miss. 
The second time they met, we will generally file a motion to dismiss for lack of prosecution under Section 19, which says that the petitioner has to be uh, compliant with offered medical care, and that would include the independent medical exam. So, in general, when they miss that first IME, uh, we're going to recommend to you, hey, don't waste time and money and file a motion. Just let's go reschedule that uh, independent medical examination and figure out why they missed it. If there's a good excuse, generally we're going to reschedule it. When they miss that second one, though, I think it's pretty automatic that we should file that motion to dismiss for lack of prosecution. Uh, and because we're not on causing, costing us time and money. At the very least, you should get an order from the judge that says at the time the case is resolved, settled, or proceeds to judgment, that we will be reimbursed for any costs associated with that missed IME. Because remember, that independent medical physician, they set aside the time on their calendar and they're still going to charge us something. You know, usually it's not the full cost of the independent medical examination, but they will generally charge us at least something from this. All right. Let's talk about some specific cases, New Jersey cases, uh, case law, and what type of independent exams I'm asking for and what I want to uh, get from the evaluator. So let's look at the first type of case. Uh, now, I think we kind of talked about the general, the orthopedic, the neurosurgical, you know, the ouchie I hurt my back, the elbow fracture, the hand injury case. Generally, going to be from an orthopedic physician. Generally, the issue is going to be the nature and extent of permanent residual disability. So let's talk about specific case sites in New Jersey, because there are a couple where I'm going to want to get a very specialized evaluation. And I'm going to want to be very careful about how I set up that evaluation. So let's talk about cardiac or cerebral vascular cases. So I'm talking about your true heart attack cases, you know, your ischemic event cases, your stroke cases. Just remember that in these cases, the legal standard is favorable to the employer. The petitioner bears the burden in these cases of showing some extraordinary stress or uh, extraordinary work activity, which led to their cardiac or cerebrovascular event. So in these cases, we want to inform the evaluating physician, essentially, here's the legal standard. The petitioner has to show this extraordinary activity, which led to this uh, event. And so we're going to want to provide some additional information. First, in your cardiac or cerebrovascular case, you're entitled to interrogatory as a matter of course under the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Court rules. And so you're going to have some great interrogatory responses that you're going to want to provide to your physician. And those interrogatory responses should go to the type of work they were done, that was being done that day, the activity level, and pre-existing conditions or history they have. So we're going to want to provide that. Next, I want to provide a job description because by definition, uh, at issue in this case is whether or not the work activity exceeded the stress in their normal life or exceeded or somehow extraordinary. And so for that reason, I want to really provide a very good description for the evaluating physician of exactly the kind of work they normally did and what kind of work they were doing on that day, right? So that's going to include not just the job description in general, but also here's what they were doing the day of this cardiac or cerebral vascular event. Next, a weather report. Oftentimes, the claimant will say, well, I was working, I was working outdoors, it was a really hot day, it was so hot, I, I wasn't getting enough fluid, and that's how I had this stroke, or that's why I had this. Uh, cardiac ischemic event. Well, we're going to want to make sure that that's true. So, uh, weather report's important. And the general atmospheric conditions are they working indoors, outdoors, witnessed, unwitnessed. Um, obviously, any kind of step by step history we can get of those onset of symptoms. You know, so many times in a cardiovascular or, or uh, a cardiac event, 
the onset of symptoms is a day after the person's been out of the employment. And the claims are that I worked really hard that day, and then I went home, I had dinner, and I was watching TV, and that's when I had my coronary. Okay, we're going to really want to give the doctor the best step-by-step -step history we can at the onset of those symptoms, so the doctor can address causal relationships. And that's really what that issue is. Okay. So again, if you're facing a cardiac pain or cerebrovascular pain, just remember there's a, the presumptions are in your favor. The claimant or the petitioner has to be burdened to prove that this is work-related. Your physician should understand that, should be given the legal standard, and given enough information so that they can really uh, present you with an objective opinion. All right, next type of case, where I'm going to want a very specific type of evaluation, that's a psychiatric case. Okay, we're talking about a psychiatric case. You're talking about another case in which the legal standard's in your favor. The petitioner has to show some peculiar work event well outside of the normal bounds of your average workday that led to their psychiatric injury. Okay. So an example of that is you know, someone who gets yelled at at work by their boss or gets a bad personnel review that day um, or has some kind of just normal job action, but they don't take it well. That doesn't beat the legal standard for a psychiatric claim in New Jersey. It really has to be something quite extraordinary, something quite specific to the work. Um, there's case law that says, you know, everybody's kind of subject to criticism from their boss or getting a bad review. That's simply not enough. Uh, to establish uh, uh, the right to compensation in the psychiatric case. So we want the doctor who's performing the psychiatric IME to know that. Here's what the legal standard is. Here's what they have to show. So we're going to want to lay that out in that cover letter. Next, in the interrogatory, uh, in the psychiatric case, you're going to serve discovery demand. You're going to get back interrogatory responses. Again, I would provide that to the physician. More information is useful for them. We're also going to want to get some lay witnesses uh, accounts. Do we have any statements from other people in the workplace about this employee, about what they were doing that day, about whether it was extraordinary, about whether the stressors were beyond what is normally experienced in that workplace? We're going to want to know that. Uh, we're going to also want to know, hey, does this person uh, have a long uh, uh, work history of having these types of complaints? Was there something specific to the work? Maybe just this one day uh, that we're going to want to bring out to the physician or not. So it's going to be really important to present that to them. And the last thing is, we're going to want to do a thorough exploration of the, whether or not there's any pre-existing conditions or predispositions. Uh, and this could, we will go all the way back into the person's educational record to determine uh, how they dealt with stress or what their results have been or what other claims they've had in the past. Very useful in undermining that psychiatric case and really providing a very full picture to the evaluating doctor. All right. Last specific instance I'm going to talk about is reopener cases. Uh, reopeners, unfortunately, are very endemic in New Jersey. Uh, you know, something like one in every five cases that's resolved uh, by way of an order approving settlement or pursuant to Section 22 is going to come back for a reopener claim. You know, we always the general bias in New Jersey is that when there is an admitted compensable case, it's difficult to close it by way of Section 20. That would be a lump sum dismissal at the time of initial resolution. But generally, when the petitioner reopens that case, because it is their right to reopen within two years, generally we're going to obtain a Section 20 at that time. And that's because the legal standard in a reopener case is that the petitioner has to demonstrate a material worsening of their condition such that additional award of compensation is required. Okay, so the burden, again, is on the petitioner. Well, we need to let the evaluating physician understand that legal standard, understand, hey, is there any words? 
So again, we're going to uh, share with them the interrogatory responses. You have a right to interrogatory responses in every New Jersey reopener case. The key question on there uh, in those interrogatories is question number 13, which asks the claimant, what interim medical care have you gotten since your last award? Oftentimes the answer is none or zero, which obviously helps undermine their claims that their condition is worsening. You're not even getting any treatment for it, you're not even seeking care for it. How much worse could it possibly be getting? So we definitely want the physician to know that and bring that out. I'm also going to want to get the transcript of the prior settlement because in order to get that settlement, the physician had to come to court and explain all of their complaints. And if, as your defense attorney, when I'm bringing out their complaints on the record, because I get to cross-examine them, I'm going through every complaint they gave to every doctor and making sure that they repeat them on the record. And the reason I do that is because, hey, the case is already settled. We've reached our compromise settlement. It's going to be resolved. Now I'm just protecting you against the reopener by having them reiterate every single complaint they've ever had. The point being, when they try to reopen the case, we can go back to the transcript and say, hey, didn't you say all this stuff back then? How are you worse now? I mean, we're really sort of setting them up to defend that reopener claim. Of course, I'm going to provide them with uh, the complete medical records. I'm going to provide the evaluating physician with the order approved as well, which establishes the nature and degree of disability. I will also present them with their own report if they're the evaluating physician with the prior report for the underlying settlement. And generally speaking, I always want to send them back to the same physician. Really what we're asking this evaluator in these types of reopener cases to do is to do a comparative analysis. Here's what they looked like when they settled their case last time. Here's what they look like today. Is there any difference? And often there will be no objective difference, which will help us set up that reopener case for that Section 20 lump sum dismissal, which is generally the client's goal. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump in now to some questions and answers. I hope uh, we've got some good questions for you today. It definitely makes it more fun when there's questions on this kind of topic. All right. Uh, so Dave asked the question, and, and it looks like Dave, you also answered the question. Okay. Uh, this is Dave H. He says, Frank, which position will provide the most weight for a judge's determination as to best fit? Greg, I suspect it's the treating doctor. Okay. You suspect correctly, right? Uh, generally speaking, though, if, when you're coming down to an issue of permanent residual disability, you're not going to have the treating doctor versus the evaluating physician. That's generally not how it's going to work out. The petitioner will go out and get their own independent medical evaluation as to their permanent residual disability, and we will go out and get our own independent medical evaluation as to the permanent residual disability. These things generally don't match. They're not going to meet up, um, but you know the compromise is somewhere between, and that's in the context of permanent residual disability. So in general, you're going to have one expert versus another expert, and that's why I care about my experts' qualifications and their ability to testify, because that's really what it's going to come down to. Um, in the less common instance, where it's a need for treatment or a temporary disability issue, where the treating physician is seeking, A, some type of medical care, which may or may not be curative, or stating that the uh, claimant doesn't have a current work capacity, and then we go out and get independent medical evaluation to dispute that, in general, yes, the judge is going to weigh the treating physician's opinion generally higher than they're going to evaluate, than they'll weigh or, or give weight to the examining physician. And generally, they're going to say, well, Greg, the treating physician's seen this person 15 times. Your evaluator saw them exactly. Um, and so in that circumstance, we really have to have a really good examination uh, done by a very, very credible evaluator 
so that when the judge is weighing those two, that we will get fair weight. Okay, so, so that's generally how those shake out. All right, I don't see any other questions. Thanks, Dave, for asking those questions. Uh, thanks, everybody, for popping in and listening. Now, um, next month, uh, we're going to talk about defending occupational exposure claims, and that's going to be both repetitive use injuries as well as your classic occupational hearing loss claims, pulmonary claims, et cetera. We're going to be talking about both classes of occupational exposure claims. So please jump in for that. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I hope you have a great rest of the week. I'll see you soon.